Hello everyone, we're here to talk about your favorite class and mine, the professional managerial class. This is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. It's Thursday, the 11th of February. I'm Alex Ohili, and I'm here as always with Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare. Um, guys, what's your favorite class? Uh, oh, and you can't choose proletariat because that's an easy option. Phil, what's your favorite class? It's got to be the bourgeoisie. <laughs> oh. that has historically played the most revolutionary role. <laughs> well, that's, yes, what yeah. I was, that's what I was going to say. Oh, me too. <laughs> it's like, those are, those are the top two. <laughs> okay, but there's different definitions of the bourgeoisie, right? There's just the owners of capital, but there's also the specific bourgeoisie, which maybe doesn't exist anymore. You know, that old, anally retentive, repressed bourgeoisie, but who actually kind of took responsibility for things unlike today's elite. And um, that was good, I guess. doesn't exist anymore, though. Yeah, they don't exist anymore. Um, yeah, they're gone. In fact, I don't even think, I mean, I don't even think bourgeoisie really, um, it's not really. I mean, if we, you know, when it's used, it's kind of always slightly um, campily and ironically. Um, or it might be used just as a kind of synonym for something which is kind of maybe affected or upper crust. Um, yeah, or, or, or indeed, or indeed as a synonym for the for the PMC, for the professional managerial class. Yeah, yeah, which is the worst kind of extension of it, you know. So, I think um, there are still some bohemian bourgeoisie in some parts of Europe, the Bobos, which is probably yeah. probably not one of the best classes in history. I think maybe you get some Euro trash. You know, there's still some kind of Euro trash bourgeoisie, maybe in places like I don't know, maybe the Netherlands, um, southern Germany, perhaps. Um, some kind of um, some bit parts of France, maybe northern Italy, perhaps. You know, I still think there's kind of um, an old-fashioned. There's a few strata of old-fashioned bourgeoisie, far less so in England um, or Britain, I should say. And I think that you know that became clear. That is that also became clear, I think, through um, through the Brexit process, indeed. Um, that's that's finance general. capital. That'll do. That's what that'll do. You know. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think there probably is an element of that that they're kind of they all. Um, they're also busy kind of doing business lunches in the city and blowing coke up each other's assholes and whatever it is like that, you know, they've kind of completely lost, um, completely lost any of the old bourgeoisie. <laughs> yeah. as, as, as Freud, who was a proper <clears throat> member of the bourgeoisie, uh, showed us that's not the right way to do cocaine, not the right reason either. You do it to, yeah. to stimulate your brain and to talk about your problems and other people's. That's a very PMC thing to say, George, not a bourgeois thing. Um, actually, an interesting contrast between the two is that the bourgeoisie internalized and upheld morality, whereas today it seems more concerned with virtue. At least that's the argument uh, of Catherine Liu's new book. And we're about to talk to Catherine. Delighted to have her back on again. Um, so we're going to call her now. All right. So he we're here with Catherine Liu, who, if you don't know, is professor of film and media studies at the University of California at Irvine. And she's the author of a new book, which we're about to talk to her about, called Virtue Hoarders, The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class, which is out now. Hello, Catherine. Great to have you back. It's actually been a little while. Yeah, great to see you guys. Here, you guys. Well, we're seeing each other as well, which is nice. Um, so I'm going to head over to George, actually, who's, uh, who's producing this episode and who's going to run things. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Also, hi, Catherine, obviously. Um, so I'm, I should take some responsibility as the, the, the nominal host. Of like an old-fashioned bourgeois. Yes, I'd, um, um, there, and there's obviously no trick questions. Um, 
unless whether you yourself would identify as a member of the PMC is a trick question. Of course. Um, of course I do. Um, what about obscenities? I forgot about that. That's 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 fine. In our little pre-record intro thing, Phil was already talking about blowing coke up your ass—not yours, but I mean one's ass—and uh, <laughs> and so that's already done now. So go ahead and swear all you like. We've broken the seal, uh, as it were. So, quite literally. Um, so yeah, just I guess to get things uh, kicked off. Um, often if we're asking people about a book that they've written we ask them why they were motivated to to write it um in this case you, you sort of wrote a book about yourself right uh, and about us as members of the uh the pmc just to just to clarify would you identify as a as a card carrying member of the pmc um, I feel like I'm a upstart, um, sort of like imposter in the class, because in the language of the American PMC, I'm sort of first gen. They don't like to say working class. They like to say first gen here, because the idea is that if you're a first generation college student, then le your progeny will be legion. And there will be the next gen and the Star Trek epic of your entire Odyssean family within the dynastic PMC. So um, both my grandmothers were illiterate and um, my father went to marginal. My father was like the only person in that generation who went to college. And then my subsequently, my youngest aunt and uncle went to college. So. I'm not technically first gen, which is a moniker I hate, but um, I feel like I arrived in this class fairly um, abruptly, if you like to say. And uh, of course, and you've asked me, you've invited me to be autobiographical. So I should say that um, having a mother who never completed the eighth grade and coming from a immigrant family, I was very outside of the American hegemonic PMC and Actually, they were very scary to my family because it was the heyday of the Cold War and the CIA and the FBI and the American agency, national security agencies were keeping a close eye on my family because my father worked at the United Nations and we had relations with communist China, as they like to call it then. But um, I had these illusions about arriving in college. And I think working class students and students who are outside of the um cultural capital world of higher education still to this day have many illusions about what acceding to the professional managerial classes means. And I thought it was acceding to an enlightened world, kind of like an Olympian world where people would debate ideas and everyone would be nar narcissistic, enlightened, and um, um, competent and... Um, open-minded and all those things that um, when you look outside of the class and you buy the classes and you drink the classes Kool-Aid, you believe when you're a kid in a kind of, you know, fucked up immigrant family. But it wasn't, yeah, I, I guess we can get into the, the ways in which PMC life maybe isn't isn't that kind of an enlightened Olympian uh, <laughs> territory. Um, but Alex, Phil, I think we should all uh, own up to our our PMC-ness if, if that's if that's what indeed we are. Phil, Phil the academic, are you are you uh, a member of the PMC then? I would. I'm not a card carrying member. Um, I'd say I'm a dissident. Just passive, passive, <laughs> active, active. A dissident. 
a dissident, um, maybe even subversive member of the PMC. Though, I guess, I mean, though maybe, in, you know, I mean, I guess that's their game, though, is subversion. And I have to say, I mean, it was it's kind of striking to hear Catherine um, describe her own, um, describe kind of approaching the PMC from the outside, because um, that was exactly my illusion, too, upon entering into higher education. I kind of imagined that it would be a world of, um, of kind of... Uh, intense seriousness and also open-mindedness and um like you say competence and also erudition um and without kind of um without the uh without um facile orthodoxy um and rigidity right right i mean i guess in this world of full flexibilization and individualization you can identify however you like uh, irrespective of any material or biological reality. So you could be a lathe operator, identify as PMC if you want. Now you're hiding. Tell us the truth. I'm, I know, I'm, 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 I'm PMC. I'm a, I'm a professional. I'm not a manager, but... Uh, you're yes. the manager of this pod. Well, there you go. There you go. You let's, are move, let's move things on. Phil, stop talking. Um <laughs> That should probably be me telling Phil. That is what a manager would say. You see right there. Anyway, I think what we what we've established is that we are all uh, engaging in self criticism to a greater or lesser extent in the course of this this episode. Um, so, Catherine, I think the start with it. I have obviously read the whole book, but start with the title because it's it's on the front cover of the book. Um, so virtue hoarders, what, what sorts of virtue is it that the PMC are hoarding? I mean, already every, this idea. every sort, every sort of virtue. They want to have all the virtue of industrialization and none of the damages, none of the consequences of capitalism. Actually, they want to be lie outside of politics. And in fact, they want to um, really exist on this transcendent plane of pure morality. So they blame the um, social conservatives for moralization, but theirs is a secular kind of moralization, a moralization of choice, of um, um, do no damage. Let me just give you an example of um, my neighborhood and its present obsessions with solar power and composting. You know, they've become yeah. moral issues for them because they don't have to deal with shortages or hunger. They have the choice of installing $15,000 worth of solar panels on their homes and then they feel, you know, like their consumption of energy is therefore clean. They, um, But the class didn't always used to be this way. I mean, the class was genuinely frightened, I would say, by um, the workers' unrest of the early 19th century. And also, it did feel, I mean, the credentialed and educated classes did feel as if the standardization of certain pro, um, professional protocols, as in the formation of the American Medical Association, really did help the cause of public health. Because in America, you know, you could stand in a corner and sell snake oil um, and mm. be a barber and cut people's tumors out and call yourself a doctor up until the standardization of certain professional expertise allowed for um, the medical profession to regulate itself. And the same thing with the professoriate. The professoriate really believed in a kind of disinterested pursuit of knowledge, especially in its left flank, 
in the early part of the 20th century. But today, it seems as all, all it seems as if all the professional organizations have perfectly become institutionalized, and now the PMC has to promote its own vanguardism as a form of moral superiority. And this translates to the solar power thing, but one of the other things I really like to read these days is anti-Chinese think tankers. So they're always saying like, oh, the Uyghurs, it's genocide. You know, the latest Secretary of State said that China is performing performing a genocide on the Uyghurs. It is indeed terrible what's happening. But if I were like advising the Communist Party right now, I would say that what they should retort to with that is that the United States is in violation of human rights because it has more per capita of its population in jails, which are inhuman mm. in terms of their conditions right now because of COVID, but also before that, and that it's actually using incarceration for profit. Um, so they also like to feel, the American PMC likes to feel superior to the rest of the world in upholding um, these putative liberal values that Phil and I, you know, believed that the PMC um, embodied as we were, you know, callow youth. So... Mm. So there are actually, two different kinds of virtue, you know, liberal virtues and this kind of moral secular hmm. um, superiority that stands outside of the ravages of industrialization and capitalism. So quite quite a heady mix of, of different sorts of um, virtue there. But before some of the, I guess, some of the terms and the history of, of the PMC, could you just give us a, a little bit of, of uh, I guess, color as, as much as you feel uh, happy to give in terms of the PMC environment of higher education um, maybe a little bit of, of your your neighbourhood around the the university there, you know. Paint us a a bit of a picture if you if you can. Okay, all right. So um, I live in a neighbourhood that was developed along with the university. And um, Phil and uh, and Phil, you didn't come, but George and Alex have been there. And it's a development of homes that were designed for professors to be able to live in a very expensive part of Orange County while. Um, also owning homes on university land. And so it was developed exclusively for the professoriate, for research staff, and um, for certain um, um, graduate students and uh, undergraduates. So it literally is very hierarchical, like California is. You know, the chancellor lives on top of the hill, and then everyone lives underneath it, and then, like, the undergraduates and the, and the graduate students live literally at the bottom, you know, uh, in the plains. Graduate and then you have the campus. at the bottom, underground, as far as, no, no, as, far no, as well. possible. <laughs> right, well, they're above the undergraduates, I have to say. So, so yeah, I guess, um, yeah, so Alex and I obviously have, have been there, and it is, it is a, quite a, a, a strange... Um, environment but yeah i don't want to kind of ask you to to name names or anything and obviously any of your colleagues or or neighbors who are listening to this this doesn't refer to you you're obviously excluded um from this characterization but yeah alex um in terms of yeah the definitions you had a question right yeah so i i mean i know these kind of terminological debates can get a bit stale but it's probably worth clarifying who we're talking about uh, and who you're talking about, who you have in mind, Catherine, when you talk about the PMC. Um, listeners of this podcast will know that we've discussed this in the past. We did a reading club on one of the Ehrenreichs, um, kind of follow-ups to their original pieces on the PMC, looking at the definitions, who are the PMC, what their role is, and so on. Um, so I guess what what do you have in, in mind when you're talking about the PMC, I guess, definitionally? Because um, we've obviously talked about higher education. People like to think about perhaps, you know, academics, people who work in NGOs, but maybe the category is broader than that. 
Well, I like to take a historical view and to look at um, Siegfried Krakauer's The Salaried Masses as a sort of prototype of um, discussing this. But actually, Vivek Chibber's um, Postcoloniality in the Spectre of Capital discusses a group of French revolutionaries who were neither noble nor um, plebeians, but they were salaried um, people. And they were part of the Revolutionary Corps. And so you have this idea that there are these people who have some kind of knowledge, who do not own capital, but who do not, and this is critical, work with their bodies. They don't use physical force to um, to um, perform their labors. And this is what um, Krakauer talks about too, is that clerks, you know, the very lowest clerk in Weimar Germany would think of themselves as a salaried person or a white collar person. And this, within this class of people who use their minds at work, um, there's obviously a lot of stratification. But as industrial society has gotten more complex, and they are nice to talk about this, this class who uses their minds and not their bodies at work expands, both in number and in importance. So I like to use that as kind of a um, a very crude, but I think sufficient way of thinking about who becomes a member of the PMC. A lot of people like to say college versus non-college educated, but I like, but I think this differentiation is better. If you don't need to lift things with your body to go to work, then you are in a white collar class, as C. Wright Mills would describe it, and you may be on the lowest end of this. But if you have also a kind of expertise that is streamlined through a professional organization and credential through that organization, you are on the higher level of this class. And um, for instance, doctors and lawyers and professors like that. But um, if you're a salesman, you actually do not work with your body. And that actually, C. Wright Mill says, is part of the white collar classes. And I would say part of the Mm. professional managerial class. Of course, if you manage people you are part of this class, and you are obvious. And if you manage people who are working with their bodies, then um, you are part of this um, class. But it's upper, it's upper echelons, and it's vanguard segments is what I'm interested in. And mm-hmm. this is a class that you know many people say Marx did not fully understand or the anticipation anticipate the strength of. Um, Mao talked about them as bureaucrats and technocrats, and they were within the Communist Party, and they were like a segment of the Communist Party that he needed to struggle with. But um, there's also another definition of this class, which I really quite like. So if you live in a warm climate and you work in air conditioning, you are a member of this class. Right. So, I mean, it's actually good that you mentioned salesmen, because I think a lot of the discussions on the left about the PMC tend to focus on the liberal wing of the PMC, maybe its upper echelons, but specifically those in, in kind of liberal professions and, and who might, who will certainly have like liberal views. But actually, maybe the modal PMC person is actually a salesman. And, and it's, you know, it's something, a job that's existed for, for quite a long time. Um, but, I, but it's interesting then, I guess, when you're talking about virtue hoarding, you're speaking about a section of the PMC, which uh, which is for you more interesting and perhaps more uh, has more impact on society or plays a greater ideological role in society. Um, it's at the top of the PMC. Yeah, it and it I, I would call it a vanguard segment. Um, it's what the Aaronites call the liberal professions, and she wouldn't include the um, salesperson in part of the as part of this. But I really think it's important to understand its evolution in American society, especially because when Mills writes about the salesman as being lower part of this expanding white collar class, he calls it a white collar class. Um, he talks about how. 
they're they're narcissistic because they're constantly having to sell themselves. They're constantly having to distinguish themselves. They're constantly having to perform personality. Christopher Lash takes this up later and says, you know, these kinds of people are the most narcissistic. But I think one of the things that, you know, I talked about this um, earlier in an interview, but um, with Jacobin was that what, see, Krakauer is the one who says, this class is an intermediate class between capitalists and workers who are working with their bodies. And they are so identified with the interests of the capitalists that they're willing to write their own pink slips. They're really they're willing to downsize themselves because they are so identified with the organizational structure and the um, larger framework. And they have no interest. They have no solidarity. They have no interest in helping themselves or each other. And he says they're the most deluded class, and they're the class that looks most. Um, that looks at culture, that is the biggest, they are the biggest victims of culture industry. So it's precisely the opposite of what um, later um, people would uh, attribute, the uh, elitism that cultural studies would attribute to the Frankfurt School, I'm being very dialectical here, and they would say, we would think like working class enjoyments were the most um, vulgar and degraded. Um, Krakauer says, um, the culture industry develops in Berlin for this class in order to maintain its fantasy of itself as somehow important and better than um, the working class or people who work labored with their bodies. And so this, the level of delusion and the ideological activity that this class has to perform in order to maintain its narcissistic illusions about its own self-importance is what drives, I mean, um, I'd say culture industry production as well as the production of contemporary ideology in our, you know, age. I don't want to call it late capitalism because it doesn't seem to be going away, but so... No, I think I think that's a really a really good, interesting point. And my kind of personal feeling on on how to define the PMC is is precisely in that kind of me- those mechanisms of of essentially trying to distance themselves culturally from from the working class and basically being anti working class while still having a lot of material interests in in common. Which I think you put that in probably a bit more of a sophisticated way. Um, but yeah, you said you you take a historical. Oh, you tend to take a kind of historical account of of the PMC, um, and in the book you, you talk about the heady days of PMC heroism. Um, so, just wanted to ask you a little bit about this historical development. Sort of, when did this class have uh, those heady days of heroism, and and then what what happened? How did they uh, degenerate to their their current uh, damned position? Well, the modern research university, as we know it, models itself after um, the American form. I mean, the the British and the Germans could claim that those are um, that the, their precedents, but tenure is supposed to um, protect a class of specialists from undue influence by um, owners of capital and administration in the university. And so this thing called academic freedom is what really promotes this idea that we are working um, to pursue truth, to pursue scientific um, advances. Um, And so in that sense, that's what I call like the heady days of the um, PMC. I'm not very um, historical in the book. I'm polemical. And I'll say this is why I wanted to write it this way. People right now, whether or not it's because of neoliberalism or like the algorithm or just the callowness of our like social media adult youth, 
people don't have disagreements with each other anymore. And I wanted to write a book that would be like catapulting my disagreements with the very fundamental basis and beliefs of my class right out into the public. So I didn't want to stand there and be a member of BMC and be like, I'm a little know-it-all and I know this and I want to teach you this and I'm going to tell you how this goes. I'm just like, no, this is wrong. This is what's wrong with it. I'm going to tell you what's wrong with it. I'm going to give you these examples. I'm going to construct this rhetorical um, virtual salvo. And then let's have a debate. Let's have um, a war of words, if you like, because we do not even know how to have disagreements anymore. In academia, there is so much thought conformity, so much submission to the demands of the administration. There's so much, there's so little difference between the way that the average um, employee of a university thinks from the way that the head of the university thinks that I think that we are looking at this fusion of employee boss interests within my class, within my profession, that is destroying the space for um, any mm. kind of critique. There's no negative. So this is so the book is pure negativity in some ways. And right now I'm giving you like the more nuanced, you know, um, historical right. background because I am a little egghead know-it-all and I have all this historical background. But I didn't want to be like shaking my fingers going, guess what, guys, you got this wrong. I'm telling you how it is. I'm like, no, this is how it is. Disagree with me if you like. So... I, I guess one of the um, interesting things about the book is precisely that, or one of the fun things about reading it is precisely how how um, polemical it is. But I guess I did have a, a question, uh, not to be a know-it-all kind of question, but is there a, um, to, to kind of take a step back, why why is it that some of these debates about the PMCs and about class in general in America seem to be, seem to have come back recently what what is it that means that people are are starting to to use that even just that word class um it seems a lot more than they have previously it was after the 2008 financial crisis when um as you guys like to say the end of the end of history happened because people really believed in the end of history in the united states more so than almost any other place in the world and i talk graduate students throughout the 90s and early aughts who really um thought that we'd moved beyond marxism that we'd moved beyond um in any analysis um necessary class analysis and that we were working um just to refine ideas. And after the financial collapse, I think um, people genuinely realized that we needed to have, um, we needed to return to Marx. And that's why I think the class thing, um, um, there was a resurgence of an interest in class. There was a resurgence of interest in the notion of contradiction. I cannot tell you how many students I've taught throughout the years who told me that they know, they didn't, that Freud was over, Marx was over. It was all about imminence. And um, imminent, so the, what, ri like, the rhizome, you know, Benoza, Deleuze, I don't Deleuze, even yeah, 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 heart negri, you know, stuff like that, because everything was about like um, flows and creativity and uh, societies of um, of control and uh, all that sort of bullshit, you might mm -hmm. say. So just, just one thing, I mean, I guess it's interesting that you know, in reference to well, the end of the end of history and maybe returning interest in class is that. That comes from the PMC, I guess, as well. I mean, it comes from uh, maybe college students and and radicalized yeah. section of the middle class. So, I mean, it's kind of that's, I guess, one of the paradoxes uh, or at least ambivalences of the PMC, right? That it can go both ways in a way, right? Oh, it's like bye. 
Yeah, I mean, KCDC. in the sense that it, that it can ally with, it can be, it can have a certain radicalism. Um, it can even be in favor of socialist politics, but at the same time, maybe has uh, certain certain ideological alignments with with the bosses at the same time, right? That's woke. I mean, that is kind of woke critical politics, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, that's yep. exactly that. Hello, listener. This is Alex here doing one of those annoying inserts, but I'll try to be quick. I want to let you know about the BungaCast Reading Club. Once a month, we take an important text and analyze it, trying to extract its contemporary relevance and the political lessons for today. We do this with help from our patrons who send in questions, comments, and their takes on the matter. And we've just set down the reading list for the whole of 2021, and I very quickly want to tell you about it. Coming up this month, we're discussing Deleuze on the Societies of Control, very apt, I think, in the midst of lockdowns. We'll also be looking at Perry Anderson's huge three-part essay series on the European Union, which is currently being serialized in the London Review of Books. For the rest of 2021, we're reading works by Slavoj Žižek on post-politics, Michael Lind on class war, Eva Luz's critique of emotional capitalism, Michael Lowy distinguishing Marxism from Romanticism, Elie Zaretsky on psychoanalysis, and Marshall Berman's classic, All That Is Solid Melts Into Air. We think it's a nice mix of long essays with a few books thrown in, so the reading load should never get too heavy. If you'd like to join, we'd of course be delighted to have you. You can sign up now at patreon.com slash bungacast. Look forward to seeing you there. Well, I wanted to ask you, so um, I suppose building on that, um, who is the leader, would you say, of the PMC? Or maybe another way to put the question, um, who, is the, who is the hero of the PMC? Um, Barack Obama. Yes, yeah. Still? Um, he, or who he, or now maybe um, Kamala Harris, yeah. Yeah. Why? What, what is it about these, these particular characters that make them... Um, Ideal members. So, uh, Hillary Clinton yeah, wanted to be a member. Um, you know, they're liberal, they're enlightened, they uh, read books, they're thoughtful, and they're completely reactionary and carceral in their politics. But they, but they appear to be tolerant and liberal and represent a vanguard of fairness and selectivity and merit. Um, I would not say Joe Biden because he's too, like... Um, Ordinary and the PMC really has to be extraordinary. Yeah, I think, I think in the book I said, you know, there are a bunch of people who believe that they do ordinary things in extraordinary ways, and Joe Biden just seems to be an ordinary guy doing an extraordinary job, but he's just ordinary, like doing well, it in he's even called way. Joe. What, what's he's right? an, he's, he's an ordinary Joe. <laughs> Yeah, but what, right. what strikes me about this, is, even with regard to Obama, is also how ordinary he is. I mean, you know, they might talk about merit, about being well read, you know, about reading and writing books. But even Obama, you know, Obama's hardly some great intellectual either for, him, for for that matter. So, so much of it is based on style, it seems, about conveying a certain image of being above it, being tolerant, being. No, uh, but I think, but I mean, you know, he's the immigrant who succeeded. Um, he's the black guy who became president. He's he was you know successful lawyer, youthful politician in Chicago. I mean, all of those things. I think they do mm. they add to the mystique, and particularly to um, yeah. I mean, I think Barack. I think I mean, I think you were spot on, Catherine. Um, in uh, with Barack Obama, I was actually well, thinking he's a, AOC, he's a symbolic but, avatar. Oh, sorry, who who were you thinking of? Well, I was thinking maybe AOC, but I think you're right. I think Barack Obama is still kind of um, is still floating up there, far above any other contenders. 
And you know who I think in France is? I don't know about in the UK, but like Emmanuel Macron is like the perfect embodiment of that spirit as well. Yeah, well, enlightened, I, I good student. He even marries his teacher. You have to be like straight A student. <laughs> teacher's pet. The PMC yeah. is the teacher's pet. That's right. <laughs> I can even think of an example from Brazil, which is why I, I said the thing about Obama not being such a big intellectual. Is that Brazil's president in the 90s, Fernando Henrique Cardoso, was a radical academic in Sao Paulo who was, um, if maybe not quite a Marxist, a barbarian at any rate, and um, you know wrote some really important works and then comes to be president, does a bunch of privatizations, uh, sells off loads of companies for really cheap, implements all sorts of neoliberal reforms. Anyway, it's all awful. Um, and he you know, is perfect, uh, perfect kind of PMC material there. Yeah, but Cardozo was a genuine intellectual, I think. In that's what, but that's yeah, my yeah, point. That's yeah. my point. He was a genuine intellectual in the way that Obama wasn't. The PMC are not intellectuals. I mean, this was my big mistake when I was younger, is that I wanted <laughs> uh, that I confused the two. So, <laughs> so what's, so what's, what's the difference or what distinguishes them, those two groups? Oh, can I be... Uh, really? Do I have to say this? Um, no, intellectuals don't, are don't truly dissenting, are truly dissenting people who have deep knowledge and are Marxist or something. And the PMC are thought conformists who pretend to be erudite and um, pander to power and are sycophants to capital. How about that one? That yep, sounds I can, I can happy to go with that. <laughs> Sorry. No, no that's, I mean, I don't know I think, I think the whole The whole book is, is driven by, um, I think, a very deserved need to give the PMC a bit of a bit of a kicking. Um, I think certainly it has my sympathy given the I think the role of this of this group in British politics in the last five or so years. So um yeah, I think Phil, you had a question though on this this relationship between the, the PMC and the working class. Yeah. So um and this goes back to um what you were saying, Catherine, about how you saw um your students' attitudes and intellectual interests and outlooks change since two thousand and eight, since the crash. So why, in your view, why didn't the PMC and the working class converge in their interests after the global financial crisis? Because that would have seemed like the kind of natural moment where you'd have seen a um, an intersection of common interest. So um, one of the things that I think um, I've been really puzzled by is why the um, energy of the post-2008 crash and the massive um, popular discontent with capitalist forms um, didn't coalesce into a united front, I guess, of um, resistance, of real resistance against um, depredations of oligarchical and monopoly capitalism. And um, one of the things that I could say is that from within the um, white collar classes, the PMC classes, there was a distrust of organization as such. And there's been so many years of anti-union um, anarchist, um, cultural radical fetishism that Occupy Wall Street became like its own sort of laboratory of anarchism and cultural fetishism um, of resistance. But I also think the disorganization of the working classes at that, at that point um, around and, and the lack of political leadership around that 
uh, around um, that kind of discontent had been something that had been building up ever since the 70s with the destruction of union life, with the destruction of notions of solidarity and um, employee and working solidarity and common cause. So that in the end, what it seemed that people were upset with were like day class A members of the PMC and and homeowners who had lost their homes under which had which they had speculated on or which they had overinvested in so there was no popular class solidarity that was even possible at that point and it came from within sort of the working class's own total dispossession and its lack of visibility within the ranks of um, Occupy Wall Street because as I said before Occupy Wall Street seemed to be an alliance of you know disaffected downloadably mobile college students and sort of um and people who had seen their you know speculations in their homes become destroyed and there was no workerist um solidarity that emerged out of that and what infuriated me about the possibility of even leadering of of um a kind of organic intellectual class like like let's say the like a Lenin or Mao emerging out of Occupy Wall Street to sort of take on. Um, capital was that every that the class it's the PMC um, members of Occupy Wall Street were so in love with anarchism that they and and suspicious of unionism as a kind union organization as a kind of you know uncool thing that people did that they were just narcissistically in love with how cool they were being and they had and no one took responsibility for leadership no one even took responsibility for making demands of Obama at that point do you remember this whole fetish about like we don't have any demands yeah 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 absolutely uh, we do need a radical intellectual core uh, cadre we need a a cadre not a pmc but a cadre that just, will lead you know that will lead an alliance but everyone's so into leaderlessness or was so le- into leaderlessness that um no one emerged to sort of take on that responsibility if you like so just to i guess draw this point out a little bit um about i guess the modes of um politics characteristic of the pmc you you said um in the case of Occupy Wall Street, that some of the PMC members were in love with anarchism, distrustful of organization. Um, what does this mean in terms of the way that the PMC do do politics today? Is, is Are there sort of characteristic modes? Are they horizontal? You know, what, what can we say about how the PMC get involved in politics? Well, the horizontality thing was definitely very much allied with 2011. I would say today, um, unfortunately, the PMCization of like resistance or left politics now takes place through um, a very reified language of trauma. What 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 do you mean? Um, so you have to kind of be able to embody this trauma that's very individualized. Then you, I, then you support each other's trauma and you move forward together. Trauma rather than universalism becomes this, um, language that people can use to, um, deal, to deal with like the transformation of a public or progressive collective by having like the visibility or the hyper visibility of individualized trauma across, um, 
private experiences become the basis for building a better society. Once again, it's the occlusion of class, it's occlusion of class interest. It's totally the um, blocking out of capitalism as economic organization. And so horizontality is not even the thing anymore in the States. It's a notion of being the victim of trauma that allows us to be political subjects in mm. this newest iteration of PMC politics. So not to belabor the point, but the idea then would be really several steps away from a, a kind of a mass movement. So instead of having a horizontal movement, which could be numerically quite large, you're essentially looking for a, a smaller and smaller, but more selective, uh, more selected, um, more kind of um, truly representative because more traumatized. Is that the idea? Um, no, and I, I don't. I think it has. I think this um, the trauma industry and trauma discourse has aspirations to be a mass movement, but that, it's like a mass movement regulated through um, the principles of managerialism about so how what, to manage so, trauma. And so COVID is like given, what would it look like from within the kind of PMC um, imaginary? What does the what does this kind of movement based around trauma? What does it look like? Uh, this is so new and so. Um, and I'm just formulating this, but you know, um, AOC, like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, someone I, you know, like to, to some degree, she's really undergone a political transformation after mm -hmm. the January 6th Capitol attacks. And now she is demanding things like, which are, I, I would say, entirely symbolic and very far removed from actual social economic justice or reorganization, even in a compromise form like the Green New Deal. And she is now, you know, sort of aligned with Nancy Pelosi and a lot of the more conservative elements of the Democratic Party to um, impeach Trump or to demand justice for Trump. Trump's incitement of the Capitol riots because she's been deeply traumatized by this. And all of the people who are on the Senate floor have been traumatized. And so um, we need reparations for trauma. And this is a visible visible trauma and the nation mm. cannot move on until we have like some kind of justice for a very localized, for the trauma that the members of Congress and the Senate have um, experienced. And so... That, that seems to be to be the spirit of like a kind of resistant politics now, very much through the language of visibility, managerialism, and um, an instrumentalized uh, um, and reified notion of trauma. I talk about this in the book as well, in the case of Emma Selkowitz, a mattress girl at Columbia University, who yeah. accused um, a young man, Paul Ningesser, of... Um, of raping her very early on in her career at Columbia. She accuses of him of this. The um, university does a, um, an investigation. They don't find anything that would warrant any kind of punishment. She is infuriated, and she begins to carry around a mattress upon which this violation, this trauma took place um, on campus, and she goes to graduation with this trauma um, made visible by the mattress. And... I don't think AOC is Emma Sokowitz. AOC is a politician. She is more, she's done more good than Emma Sokowitz. Emma Sokowitz has done no good at all. But um, we have this new um, visibility of visibilization of trauma as part of a way of moving um, once again the conversation away from the fundamental ravages of 
socioeconomic inequality, the destruction of working class life and working class life worlds, the destruction of the future that capitalism has wrought on the United States. And we displace it onto these distinct traumatic events for which we then demand um, reparation, we demand justice. And that like really changes our notion of justice. Like my notion of justice is very different from what a, um, that this kind of localized notion of justice is. I've been the victim of quite a di- number of forms of trauma that I want that I don't want to share with the public necessarily. I don't want to share it on this podcast. I like you guys, but I'm not going to talk about it in in detail. And um, I feel like there are now like channels by which young people like AOC, like Emma Silkowitz, can gain a great deal of publicity and visibility for working out their traumas online or in public in order to demand a kind of justice that actually displaces um, any kind of political idea or economic idea of justice itself. And in the case of AOC, directly connected to legitimizing state power, and legitimizing um, the you know this attempt to kind of crank up a domestic war on terror, and national security will be only strengthened. All, all the institutions of national security will only be strengthened by um, this demand for justice that um, she's now espousing. And I feel very sad for her. I feel very sad about it because when I saw that IG live thing, she has not worked through any of this trauma and. It is not the right place to work it out in uh, on an Instagram live feed. You know, Catherine, hearing you talk about the, this question of AOC kind of flaunting her trauma and being a means, I guess, to connect to her constituency or her supporters, um, it, it strikes me that, you know, there's a focus on AOC as a person and, of course, you know, the kind of personalization of politics that her flaunting of trauma represents. And, like, how do you get from... The leaderlessness of Occupy that you were just talking about as the as a real characteristic mm. of PMC politics to that and it and I it, it, I think for me at least what seems to connect the two you know you also have it with Bernie where instead of organizing creating a new political party creating cadres which throw up a leader and so on the kind of traditional process of modern politics there's a kind of latching on to a to a leader to to what um, a former guest of the podcast Paulo Garbaldo calls a hyper leader um, which is this kind of charismatic figure which doesn't really have much connection to necessarily to a party or through party branches and so on but is just latched onto as as this sort of figure and you kind of get a little bit of the same thing with AOC as well so you're kind of I mean at least to me it seems like you've got uh, kind of two two alternative, neither of which is good, which is either this kind of ty- uh, tyranny of leaderlessness on the one hand, or it resolves into this latching on to Bernie, the one guy who's going to save us all. Um, and it's all, you know, it's all on Bernie, basically. Um, do, do you see that as, itself as a manifestation? I, I, of I, 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 I think there is um, a real relationship there, but part of this could be just dealt, understood as the... Um, full reification of intersubjective relations where there our intersubjective relations are so weak that we can only have these kind of um, fan relations. We can only stand stars and that creates like the bond between fans. Um, You know, 40 to 50 years of neoliberalism has really destroyed um, intersubjective trust or, or, and any possibility of solidarity. And this goes back to part of my disappointment with um, PMC intellectual life too, is that I think there's so little trust that holds people together in a room or even in a seminar room that they cannot actually even disagree with each other. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah. that because there is no there is no basis of commonality any longer. And so everything is this fake agreement. Everything yeah, is this fake identification. I think, I think we would agree with you on that. Or hysterical denunciation, right? <laughs> right. No, that's not disagreement. That's canceling. Oh, and exactly. I, I exactly. actually, yeah. And I actually had this um, revelation when I was talking to one of my graduate students. She came up with this, Kelly Donahue. She said, you know, um, we were talking about Phil, Philip Johnson being discovered as a Nazi. I mean, sympathizer. We all knew he was an asshole and a Nazi sympathizer. I don't know why it was news to anyone. But now... Um, MoMA has is trying to, um, you know, expunge his name from its buildings, the Museum of Modern Art. And I thought this was like the perfect PMC kind of symbolic manipulation as politics. They want to rebrand themselves as completely mm. free from the past. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Mm. So now that we're, I guess, talking about politics, um, we probably should get down to the to the nub of the PMC question, at least from from a left wing perspective, is which is, you know, do we need the PMC? What do we do about the PMC? And I mean, can, how how can we build cadres outside of the well, PMC? Exactly. That's my I mean, big I, question. and I guess well, to put in a historical terms, you know, the the left always contained sections of the middle class, maybe before it was even called the PMC. Um, we, whether as intellectuals or just as ordinary members, as activists, and so on, but it was. You know, it was minoritarian in 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 relation to kind of working class membership, um, which now seems to not be so much the case. So, what do you do about the PMC given its ambivalence? What do we do? I think we have to denounce it wherever we can uh, and denounce its values. Um, I don't believe, like Julius Krein or even someone like more of a centrist like Gabriel Wynant, that we have to have a more enlightened PMC. I, I don't believe that at all. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's interesting because you have an, the populist attacks on the PMC, often by, I guess, like petty bourgeoisie, I guess, the, you know, um, at least certainly that's the way that a lot of the Trumpists are characterized who attack the PMC. Um, and of course, defenders of the PMC will say that uh, any attack on them, um, including something like your book, uh, is just, you know, falling in line with uh, with the petty bourgeois populists. Um, the, there are also like orthodox Marxists who say the PMC are petty bourgeois because they do, they um, are this intermediate class and yeah. they are aspire, aspirational to grand bourgeois um, consumption habits and um, capitalist uh, sort of owning of the means of production. But... Um, I, I like to think of it as like lower tier lower tier PMC versus upper tier PMC. Mm. That's what I was talking about before, because I really do think that the notion of the bourgeoisie is something that needs to be refined for um, complex forms of you know post industrial capitalism, if you like. So yeah. Um, so it's, inter I, I, it's interesting yeah, you so. you mentioned the the upper PMC or maybe there's a split within within the the group because within the class because i think my my personal take on this is that a lot of the politics of the left at least in you know in britain and probably in america as well in the next few years is going to be defined at least in part by what's next for particularly the lower section of the pmc yeah. the people who are that's right downwardly mobile at uh, risk of falling into the working class um and my probably not very optimistic uh, take is that there's going to be a doubling down on a number of cultural and political 
kind of means of trying to distance this kind of lower PMC from the working class. And this will take mm. a lot of different forms, anti-racism, anti-fascism, a lot of political maneuvers around citizens' assemblies and kind of non, um, non-mass non or non-majoritarian um, institutions. And, you know, this, I would say, you could summarize this. And in fact, we do in the book um, as moral minoritarianism, i.e. it's not so, about having political majorities. It's about building moral um, cases. So I guess to, to kind of put a point on this, or question on this point rather um is there any hope for the pmc in the next in the next few years what's what's coming down the line from this group that is so dark george wow okay so what i was going I think to it's say black was pilled or doom pilled or whatever no, whatever the that good is, is so bleak that is so dark so i i'm going to be the pollyanna here where i think that the lower echelons of the pmc like nurses and even put upon like emergency room doctors they are going to be the ones who might actually offer the break when they really unionize or um, Mm. demand Medicare for all. Just as like the maybe red state teachers unions, which who all went on strike in the past um, few years, demanding greater funding for public schools and creating these, you know, alliances that were cross across um, race and across race, especially and gender, the lower tier of the PMC is going to organize, and I hope organize in um, in sort of classical laborite forms like unions and become more militant. And that's my hope. But you know, your your bleak mm. vision of the future is certainly you know one that I can see happening as well. But I think that. The American medical system is so fragmented, it's near collapse. The top of that medical system are venture capitalist doctors, if you can imagine such a thing. They're the PMC and finance insurance real estate heads of the um, universe. And they're the ones who designed the Obama Affordable Care Act, which is neither affordable nor caring. And the lower echelons of healthcare professionals are nurses, emergency room doctors who are on the ground right now and who are dying, but who are also just working incredibly hard. And I feel like uh, if there can be solidarity within the lower echelon um, PMC types and um, emergency room doctors on the ground, healthcare workers, that can be a great site of um, organization for what we need is universal health care in the state in the states but um, right now I feel like um, we cannot the one the one group we cannot hope for any kind of progress from is the upper echelons of the PMC they are lost they are completely lost they are the enemy actually very good. Um, I, maybe we can leave that there because we're, we're going to continue this conversation on, I'm saying this for listeners' benefit, uh, with Catherine over on uh, our Patreon, which is on patreon.com slash bungacast. And we're going to be talking at the beginning specifically about PMC unionization and what's happening there, uh, whether that pre- presents a possible avenue for progress for the lower PMC to cleave off from the upper PMC or whether it has its own ideological problems. Uh, and we'll be talking about uh, a lot more continuing this conversation with Catherine over there. Um, so for now, thank you, Catherine. <laughs> you oh, bye, it- everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much for that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that <was laughs> nice and natural. Was that really fake? Okay. All right. Hasta la vista, babies. Okay. I don't know what else to say. He, he just...